You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I'm discussing the case of Diane Francis, who was last seen in Jacksonville, Florida in 2005. Diane's daughter, Sherry Snyder, has been on a mission to find her mother pretty much ever since. I met Sherry in 2019 through her cousin, Maggie. Maggie has been a huge part of Sherry's support system in all of this. And I would have never known about Diane's case if it weren't for her. I ended up having dinner with Sherry, Maggie, and Aaron Reed from the Sipping on Some Crime podcast. Aaron would later put a lot of time and effort into creating a mini-series about Diane with the help of Sherry on her podcast. So if you're looking for a super extensive deep dive on Diane's case, I definitely recommend checking it out. In May 2020, I invited Sherry, Maggie, and Aaron onto a live stream to talk through Diane's case. So, long story short, I've known Sherry for a few years now, and I am very familiar with this case. So, I really wanted to help tell her mom's story here on Voices for Justice. The thing about Diane's story is that it's very much her daughter Sherry's story as well. You see, we really only know Diane through Sherry's eyes, through her memories and her stories. Other than that, all we really have to go off of are police reports and records from the Florida Department of Children and Families. And yes, these reports are informative, but they leave much to the imagination about what Diane was really like, how she disappeared, and what may have kept her away from her family. Sherry has dedicated a huge part of her life to finding her mother. Without her, you wouldn't be hearing this story today. So, of course, I invited her on the show to help us get a better understanding of how her mother seemingly vanished without a trace. 
So let's get into it. This is the case of Diane Francis. Diane Teresa Francis was born on July 7, 1968 in Somerville, New Jersey, to her parents David and Rose. She was their first child, and the couple would go on to have two sons, making Diane the oldest of three kids. Here's Sherry to tell us what her mom was like when she was younger. So she definitely had tons of her friends reach out from Jersey, um, stating that, you know, she was just this leather jacket wearing 80s girl. I don't really know, you know, the tube socks and the the sweatbands kind of thing. That was her her get up and the, the feathered hair. And um, she she liked uh, Judas Priest was one of the the bands that she really was into. I know like Led Zeppelin, all you know, all of those really well known ones, of course. But um, yeah, I had tons of friends reach out and just say how sweet she was and how most girls in their grade were jealous of her, and she was like the girl next door kind of, and everybody knew her family and their families hung out, and you know if she wasn't over her friend's house, they were over at my grandparents' house, so. Uh, definitely tight-knit community there in Jersey where she grew up and uh, she definitely was a light you know like when she came into a room and made her jokes and did her little quirky things to make people laugh it it changed the whole mood of everything and that's that that was Diane or you know most people knew her as Di-Di. When Diane was about 12 years old her parents started the process of getting a divorce. Both Rose and David will say right around this time is when Diane began to act out. Rose would state that Diane just kind of broke, while David would state that it seems that Diane began running with a very different and bad crowd. She also began experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Both parents agree that there was just way too much pressure on Diane at such a young age. One of Diane's brothers would later state that at the age of 14, Diane began abusing alcohol. By the age of 16, Diane became pregnant with her first child, but unfortunately, she lost the baby. That's a lot to go through by the age of 16, and unfortunately, over the years, Diane's addiction would only get worse. Eventually, Diane met a man named Charles Snyder. They never got married, but they had two daughters together, Jessica and Sherry. By all accounts, these girls meant the world to Diane but she was still battling with her addiction to drugs and alcohol. The family eventually moved from New Jersey to Florida, but in 1995, Diane left Charles for a man named John Schmidt. At this time, Charles moved back to New Jersey and stayed away until the kids got older. So as far as Diane's story goes, this is really where his participation ends. Eventually, Diane and John Schmidt would break up as well, and Diane would end up dating several other men throughout the years many of which were abusive and also battled with addiction issues. Over time, Sherry and Jessica would be removed from their mother's care several times during their childhood. Here is Sherry talking about the ups and downs of living with her mother during this time. Even when my sister and I were little and things would get rough, that's the number one thing I remember about her is just she would stutter over her words to make us laugh, put things in the freezer that didn't go in there, like... For example, I remember her putting my school outfit in the freezer one night after she salted it on the counter just to make me laugh, you know, and I I came up and was like, what are you doing? And she was like, well, well, you know, and she started her stuttering and 
it was just funny. And she put it away. Obviously, she knew what she was doing. It wasn't like she was so tired. She was just putting my sweater in the freezer. She saw me there looking at her and she wanted to make me laugh. So just little things like that. I know um, she always stuck up for my sister and I. Um, There were some bigger things that happened as kids that she couldn't exactly defend us from. But I know that the little things like inside the home, if my sister and I would get in a spat with our stepbrother, she was always right there defending us. It didn't matter what the circumstance was. We were right. (laughs) That was just my mom. And again, like her willpower to come back three times in a row and even more so than that, actually, three times legally we were taken away. But there was some voluntary where she gave us voluntarily to my grandparents prior to that. And so to see her come back and take us from my grandparents and get better. And then she lost us again and came back and got better and came back and got better. You know, uh, it was just a fight in her that I could see even as a four year old little kid up until I was, you know, eight or nine, whenever we got taken away the last time she fought hard. There was something going on inside of her that I don't think that she could control herself between knowing what was right and doing what was wrong there was a fine line there. Like she almost, you could tell wanted to do what was right, but just couldn't. She kept falling back into that, doing what was wrong. And, um, I really feel that if a lot more people saw that, they would know that I'm not just saying my mom's missing and they know I'm not crazy. Like my family, um, they think, you know, she kind of just wanted to go off on her own. And my thing is someone that continues to come back and try and fight and try and fight, I don't think they just give up one day. Um, Again, that's my opinion, but that's how I saw it as her daughter who watched her go through it, you know, watched us get taken, watched her, you know, get better and come back and how good she was when she would come back. Um, Just to see her go into it again, I know there was something bigger there that maybe nobody else could see, um, an internal fight of her own, you know. I I can't name what it was, but I have my suspicions on like maybe sexual abuse as a child, physical abuse as a child, those, you know, marker situations in lives that change your life for the long term, like something that happened to you as a adolescent. Um, But yeah, that was my mom, just the light in the room, (laughs) the best thing that walked in pretty much. The reports from the Florida Department of Children and Families are heartbreaking, and you can see how they directly correlate with Diane's arrest record. When I went through all the paperwork that Sherry gave me, I put together a timeline for each and every incident, and there's something almost every few months, if not every few weeks. The paper trail begins in October 1996 with a report from the Florida Department of Children and Families, or DCF for short. This report states that Diane received $5,000 and left her daughters with a friend in order to search for her boyfriend, John Schmidt. But Diane ends up leaving the girls there overnight. And this friend was concerned that Diane was actually just out partying with that $5,000 she received. When Diane does reach out to this friend at 3 p.m. on the next day, she asks them to keep her kids until she's able to get her power turned back on. In the end, Diane does test positive for cocaine and ends up giving her brother temporary custody of the girls. Now, I don't tell you all of this to break Diane down. She was obviously struggling with a lot of issues there. 
I'm telling you this because I think we learn a lot about Diane's situation from this specific report, if we're to assume it's factual. From here, the paper trail just kind of continues like this. There's more reports from DCF and a lot of arrests. Around 1997, Diane started dating a man named John T. Boggs, or JT for short. JT actually helped Diane get her kids back, and they all lived together as a family of sorts. But like Diane, JT was also addicted to drugs, and they only fueled each other's addictions. JT was also physically abusive towards Diane, oftentimes in front of the kids. Near the middle of 1999, Diane's children were placed into the custody of DCF for a second time. On December 19, 1999, a family member of Diane's called the police to do a welfare check on her, stating that they were concerned that she might be suicidal. In the report, Diane admits that she was depressed after losing her children to the state, but ultimately, the officer left Diane with her friends in her apartment. Like Sherry briefly mentioned, she and her sister were taken out of their mother's custody several times. But according to Sherry, Diane made many attempts to get them back. She attended the classes, she went through the motions, she did everything she could to get them back. But she also resorted to outright physically taking them back. Sherry says that she and Jessica often slept with their shoes on while they were out of their mother's custody just waiting for the next time she'd show up at their window in the middle of the night to take them back. This is heartbreaking, but it's not uncommon. When I worked with children in the foster care system, I'd read reports about these things all the time. I can't say I blame either party for wanting to reunite. I'm not saying that the girls were better off in Diane's care, but I can say the foster care system can be a very scary and traumatic place for kids. And I know for Sherry and Jessica, it definitely was. Eventually, Diane and JT broke up, and Diane met a man named Roger Foreman, who, like JT, assisted Diane in getting the girls back once again. And they were successful. Sherry, Jessica, Diane, Roger, and Roger's son all lived together for some time. But once again, it was reported that the girls weren't being properly cared for, and that Diane was using drugs again. This is another heartbreaking report. It explains that they were evicted from their home and living in a car before moving five people into a motel room with a single bed, and the conditions in the hotel room were really bad. In 2003, Sherry and Jessica were taken from Diane's custody by the state for the third and final time. This would be the last time they would ever see their mother. This time, they knew something was different. You know, I think it was like, six months passed or something like that. And Jessica and I were used to going into foster care and then visitation shortly after. So like we were always able to see her shortly after being placed in a home, no matter where it was or what it was. Um, but not this time. This time a woman came and she told Jessica and I to, this was like six months later after we were placed in this home. She told us to come to her trunk of her car in the driveway. And we, I remember we walked out and she had this large bin and it was filled with all of our favorite outfits and all of our favorite candies and chips and drinks and stuff like that. It was from our mom. So it was kind of like a parting gift, I guess. Jessica, Jessica and I were so trained. It's not even funny. Like, so as soon as this package showed up in front of the foster parents, we're like, oh, yay, chips, you know, like our favorite clothes, whatever. As soon as they left, we dragged that thing into our room and searched it thoroughly like I mean dumping everything out we didn't even care what was in there 
and there was a little folded up note in the back of my sister's favorite jeans. And we unraveled it. And it was basically my mom pouring her heart out just that, like, I'm sorry, I will be back. This isn't the end. Um, there's this thing I always post on Facebook. It's a quote from her. It's like, when you see the moon, I'm seeing the same moon. And when you see the stars, I'm seeing the same stars. So we could never be too far apart. And like, just little, little stuff like that. She put in the note that told Jessica and I it wasn't over for her. Although this did seem like a final care package from Diane, it seemed pretty clear that she had no intention of never seeing her children again. But unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. In 2005, Diane and Charles' parental rights were permanently severed. Sherry and Jessica weren't allowed to see Diane during this final court date, but they did hear her voice over an intercom as well as their father's. Sherry, of course, says it was pretty devastating, but this time was different. There was never another care package, call, or a letter from Diane, and she never showed up in the middle of the night to come get them. So Sherry grew concerned and began searching for her mom using the limited sources she had while still in the foster care system. I started looking for my mom in foster care, first and foremost, which, again, that was, like, secretively, very sneakily. I wasn't supposed to be doing it, so... Um, it's not like I was printing police reports and calling this one. I had no phone. I wasn't even supposed to be on the internet. I wasn't supposed to have Facebook. I wasn't allowed to publicize my photos in fear that our mother would find us if she was out there looking for us um, because there's a no contact when terminate parental rights. So my official start was 2010 when I got out of foster care, and um, the first instance of me ever asking or searching or anything was uh, when we got in contact with my family again after eight or nine years of being separated. So we got taken for the last time in 2003, went into the system, stayed in the system until we were almost aged out at 16 and 17. Then we found my grandparents who happened to live right around the corner from the shelter we were placed in after eight or nine years. It was really, really cool fate situation. Um, but again, asking them when we got out, because they removed us from the shelter, um, they said they didn't know that she hadn't called in a couple years or it was a few years. It was a few years ago on Thanksgiving when she called. And so this was in 2010. So it was like 2006 
when she called, supposedly. Um, and she was looking for her birth certificate and social security card and things like that. And she wanted her dad to send it to her. And so he claims he did. And then never heard back from her. And when he tried calling the hotel back that she had called from, it was closed down. Sherry told me that her grandfather did try to pull some strings and ask his cop friends in Florida to help look for Diane, but they weren't able to find anything. So she began her own search. Now, I'm sure many of you are asking why Diane wasn't reported missing by her parents. And unfortunately, no one really knows. I know when Sherry called several police departments in Florida to try to report her mother missing, they pretty much laughed her off the phone. So Sherry was mostly on her own in her search for her mom. She requested all the records pertaining to the name Diane Teresa Francis from Jacksonville, Florida and four surrounding areas. From these reports, we are able to track some of Diane's last movements since she last saw her children. But Sherry also discovers something huge. One day, she enters her mother's prison number from these reports, the same number that's on every arrest record for Diane Francis. But another name pops up. Kimberly Teresa Foreman. Same birthday, same physical description, down to the JT tattoo she has on her right forearm. And most importantly, the same fingerprint. If you recall, one of Diane's last boyfriends that we know of was Roger Foreman. So naturally, Sherry assumes this is where she came up with the alias. But this is huge. Sherry found a major piece to this puzzle that allows us to really begin to piece together Diane's last whereabouts. So let's go over the timeline, starting when Diane lost custody of her children. On June 20th, 2004, Diane was arrested in Jacksonville under the name Kimberly. This was for public intoxication after being caught drinking behind a payday loan store. On June 22, 2004, Diane gets a ticket in Jacksonville for a seatbelt violation under the name Kimberly. Now, I have a copy of this violation, but unfortunately, the section where it lists the driver's license number is redacted. So I don't know if Diane actually had a driver's license for this alias or not. But it begs the question, how was Diane arrested under both names but also under the same prison number? There are no charges for false identity or anything like that. So it appears that either no one in Jacksonville caught that she was using two different names, or maybe they just didn't care. If any of you guys out there know more about how this could happen, please let me know on social media. It's just something I cannot get out of my head. But on September 30th, 2004, Diane is arrested in Jacksonville under the name Kimberly for public intoxication. Again, on October 31st, 2004, Diane is arrested in Jacksonville under the name Kimberly for public disturbance and public intoxication. There is a note in this report that she suffered from depression. On December 8th, 2004, Diane, using the name Kimberly, is stopped in Jacksonville while walking down the street. She tells the officer that she got into a fight with her boyfriend, but his name isn't mentioned in the report. The officer just lets her continue walking. On May 1st, 2005, Diane is arrested under the name Kimberly in Jacksonville for public intoxication at a Ramada Inn motel. At this time, she signs a trespassing warning. 
Fast forward about five months, on October 12, 2005, Diane is arrested under her real name this time for trespassing at the same motel in Jacksonville. This report is a little more detailed than the others. We learn that Diane is pepper sprayed after trying to allegedly punch one of the security guards who were attempting to remove her from the property. Diane signs another trespassing warning and refuses to be treated for the pepper spray. On November 27, 2005, we get our very last arrest record for Diane. This is when she's caught trespassing once again at that same Ramada Inn. When police arrive, Diane was sitting on the bed drinking a beer. In the report, the officer says that Diane reaches for her husband's hand. However, Diane has never been married, and the man they're referring to in the report is never named. So we don't know who this man is that Diane called her husband. And according to Sherry, nobody's come forward to say that it was them. But Diane reaches for this man's hand in some type of attempt to not be arrested. She does ultimately resist arrest, and she's placed on her stomach, handcuffed, and taken to jail for the night. The next morning at 9.38 a.m., Diane is released from jail. And this is the last time anyone ever physically saw Diane. On June 1st, 2006, Diane failed to appear for a hearing about her outstanding fines amounting to $240. This court date would have allowed Diane to ask for an extension or set up a payment plan for these fees. This is significant. In all of Diane's records, she has completed the programs assigned to her and paid her fines. But this time, she didn't. However, like we heard earlier, Diane's father told Sherry that Diane called him on Thanksgiving in 2006 to ask for some of her personal items. She also expressed that she wasn't doing well. So technically, this would be the last time anyone ever heard from Diane after this missed court date. Maybe Diane was in really poor health. Maybe her addiction just caught up to her and she was having a hard time functioning. But something clearly changed at this point. Her paper trail stops nearly one year to the day before this last call to her father. From 1996 to 2005, Diane is arrested or is mentioned in some type of report at least every few months. Diane also notoriously called her parents every six months like clockwork. But one day, the calls just stopped. Her police record stopped and her social security number was never used again. Every trace of Diane Teresa Francis and Kimberly Teresa Foreman stopped. Now, it is important to note that Sherry says Diane was engaging in sex work in some rough parts of Florida during this time. So maybe someone was trying to help her stay out of trouble so she could continue working. But of course, we also have to consider the risks that come with that line of work. We know it's an unfortunate fact that sex workers are often targets for predators, and often seen as disposable. It's just not something I think we can skirt around in this case. But now that we have our timeline of Diane's last movements, let's jump back to Sherry's search for her. While Sherry still lived in Florida around 2014, she and her sister began making flyers of Diane and they tried getting local businesses around Jacksonville to hang them up. But they refused, because Diane wasn't technically a missing person. So, Sherry and Jessica began going door-to-door in their old neighborhood to hand out flyers. 
including every single house they remember living in, as well as all of the houses of Diane's ex-boyfriends in the area. Ultimately, their flyers didn't produce any results. No one had seen or heard from Diane. A few years would go by, and Sherry moved out to Arizona while still working to try to find her mom. On June 15th, 2019, which is Sherry's birthday, by the way, she calls the police in Florida to again beg them for help to find her mother. They eventually agree to do a welfare check at an address that Diane lived at 15 years prior. Of course, by this time, there was a totally different family living there who had no idea who Diane was or what happened to her. But this sparks a major breakthrough in Diane's case when Sherry gets a call from another officer. Another officer calls me, and she's real real sweet, and she says, so I heard you had the officers go out there, whatever. So I have this report from 2015 that I want to tell you about, but I can't unless you can tell me the first and last name on the report. And I'm just thinking in my head, well, Diane Francis? And she's like, and she laughed and was like, no. And I'm like, oh, mm. Sherry Snyder? <laughs> like, I didn't know what to say, you know? So then she's like, okay, I'll give you the first name. If you can give me the last name, you got it. So she said John, and immediately I said the last name. And she's like, okay. So she starts reading it, and it was a missing persons report, attempted missing persons report from my mom's ex-boyfriend from 1999. The one that used to abuse her, who I also have the reports from. So it's just like, and that was the last and latest thing on her case whatsoever. I guess they decided to not make it a missing persons report because if I can't get one, you know what I mean? That's like you trying to call in and get one. If I can't get it as her daughter, her ex-boyfriend is definitely not going to be able to get one. It's just like anybody calling, a stranger, someone who doesn't even know her. They don't know him or what association he has to Diane. So to them, it was just like open and close in 45 minutes is what she told me. And now it's just a memo on her criminal background report. So it was never taken as a missing persons report. I mean, sometimes I wish they had taken it because then she'd have a report from 2015. I didn't get a report for her until 2019 when I discovered his attempted report. So... Um, and again, all of this is kind of coming to a head. Like I started my research in 2010, 2011, but all of this is kind of coming to a head now because I just found out about that report from 2015 in 2019. So, and then finding out there's other missing people associated with this person. That's just now happening this year. Let's break this down because a lot just happened in that clip. So, John Boggs, or JT, reports Diane missing on May 11, 2015, stating that he hadn't seen her in 12 years. He also claims that he is the stepfather to her children, which we know just isn't true. Other than that, all we learn from this report is that the police are aware of Diane's alias, and that JT thought that she was living in Jacksonville last he heard. Now, let's talk about this other missing person. The person Sherry was referring to in that clip is a man named George Contos. George was JT's neighbor, and he went missing the day before JT reported Diane missing. There isn't a ton of information out there about George's case, but I did find a 2018 article from Matt Bruce at the Daytona Beach News Journal. The article states that officials recommended first-degree murder charges be brought against a man named Donald Corcoran 
and his stepson, Andrew Nemec. They believe the crime was most likely motivated by money, but as of recording this episode, no charges have been brought against anyone for the murder of George Contos, and he remains a missing person. So if there is any connection between JT and George Contos, the police aren't talking about it. With that being said, Sherry states that JT told her that the reason he filed the report back in 2015 is because he'd actually seen one of the flyers that Sherry and Jessica were handing out. But how JT could have gotten one of these flyers is a mystery to Sherry, because she says that she was passing out these flyers in an area two hours away from where JT lived. But this isn't mentioned anywhere in JT's report. So why JT reported Diane missing after so many years isn't exactly clear. In Sherry's efforts to find her mother, she tried to speak with pretty much anyone she could. She reached out to old friends and every single one of Diane's ex-boyfriends that she could find. She says that most were helpful, but they were hesitant to talk about some of the darker times. She did speak with JT for some time, but that relationship has since dissolved. Sherry did receive support through a church that her and her sister used to attend. They actually went as far as to hire a private investigator to help them find Diane. This man flew out to Jacksonville and tried to track down anyone that could remember her. But Sherry admits that it was pretty much a wild goose chase. In the end, this was the advice Sherry received. Because in the end, I was told that my best bet is to walk the streets of Jacksonville in US-1, where my mom was prostituting, and that's how I will find her if she's still alive. If she's still alive and out there. I live all the way on the other side of the country, so, and, you know, I will probably get there eventually. I will, that will be my, you know, my end result probably is having to go and do that. But, I mean, for now, I think the internet investigating that I'm doing is working to my advantage, at least now. Unfortunately, like we see in a lot of cases, Sherry is spearheading this pretty much on her own. Her sister Jessica is extremely supportive, as is her cousin Maggie. But Sherry has been told to get over it, to give up, and to move on with her life by other family members. But of course, Sherry hasn't given up, and I don't see her giving up anytime soon. In fact, when I went to interview her for this episode, I helped her a bit with her own mic and audio setup because she wants to create a podcast of her own. She hopes to tell her mother's story as well as those of others in need, which of course I couldn't support more. This is another one of those cases where we're just left with so many questions. What happened to Diane? Was she met with foul play from one of her abusive ex-boyfriends? Or a stranger? Who was the man she called her husband in that last report from the Ramada Inn? Was it the same man she got in a fight with when police stopped her on the street? Of course, I had to ask Sherry if she thought that there was any reason her mom would voluntarily stay away. Again, there's been some speculation about maybe, you know, if she was in this transient uh pretty bad lifestyle that she had going for her when she disappeared. If she continued that, there is speculation that maybe she had to go into some sort of protection. Um, So something like that is the only thing I could really see keeping her away. Um, Because again, she did return. No matter how dirty her laundry was, 
she packed it up, threw it on her shoulder, and she came back. That's, you know, it didn't matter. We'd wash it out when she got home. Like, that. that's what it was. And so for her to just stay gone in 2005 was like something big had to have made that happen, such as witness protection or, you know, something heinous happening to her and her not being alive anymore that has been brought up. Um, her moving and just changing names has been brought up. Um, things like that are the only reason I could see her not coming back. She fought tooth and nail. She'd come to my uncle's house where we were being kept in foster care and fight him physically, telling him that she was coming in for us. And we would sleep with our shoes on because she'd come to the window and and try and take us. So to have someone go from that for years and years, I mean, from 1996 to 2005, and that's just what I have on paper, um, she did it month after month after month, and then all of a sudden just stopped. I don't see that being, you know, she just felt like it. Yeah. She just felt like not coming back. I couldn't, I couldn't ever believe that in my heart or mind, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, as her daughter. Um, but again, that's just me. My uncle, from his perspective, you know, um, he thinks that she's out there somewhere just kind of not telling us where she's at. And again, from a legal standpoint, everything that's on paper, that doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I don't know. Again, I can't say for certain because I'm not her and I'm not there, but I don't think at 37 years old she was just unable to commit crimes anymore. Right. Again, yeah, there's no reason for her to just completely cut ties with everyone and anyone she ever knew. This brings me right to our call to action. Sherry says the best way to help her mom is to just share her story. Diane's story has gotten very little media coverage, so one share can go a long way. In addition to sharing Diane's story, Sherry is raising money through a GoFundMe set up by Aaron Reed at the Sipping on Some Crime podcast. These funds will help Sherry get back to Florida to look for her mom, just like the PI recommended. If you can't give, please don't feel bad, but please take a moment to share. As a reminder, Diane Teresa Francis was last seen at the age of 37 on November 28, 2005 in Jacksonville, Florida, though her father states she made one last call to him on Thanksgiving in 2006. Diane would be 53 now. She is a white female that weighed about 100 pounds at the time she went missing. She's 5'3 and typically dyed her hair blonde, and she has hazel eyes. She also has a tattoo that says JT on the inside of her right forearm, and a tattoo of a heart on her left calf. Diane could also be using the name Kimberly Teresa Foreman. Anyone with information about Diane Francis is urged to call the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office at 561-688-3000. You can also contact Sherry directly through the Finding Diane Francis Facebook page. But... As always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. 
For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.